0: Welcome to the Inclusive Growth Show with Toby Mildon, future-proofing your business by creating a diverse workplace. Hello there. Thank you ever so much for tuning into this episode of the Inclusive Growth Show. Today, I'm joined by E.S. Al Carson, who is the founder and managing partner, of Beyond the Quarter. So, EAS works with businesses to help them grow, but have values and purpose at the core of that growth. So, EAS, it's, it's great to have you on the show. Thank you very much for, for inviting me to it. Looking forward to it. Brilliant. So, EAS, can we begin by you telling us a bit more about yourself and what led you to to setting up Beyond the Quarter consultancy? I started my my serious working life in
1: technology consulting. Uh, I was helping companies uh, do business intelligence, which is essentially analyzing data and uh, sort of coming to conclusions with that. Uh, And I did that through a a consultancy that I co-founded. We grew that quite well. We got to about 40, a team of around 40, a turnover of sort of somewhere around sort of three and a half million or so, and then got acquired by, by one of our investors. And what I didn't know uh, when uh, when we got inqu- acquired was that they actually had a bit of a uh, a bit of a staff churn issue. Their uh, their team was basically churning at around forty percent. They'd come out of the uh, the dot com boom or the dot com crash. They'd figured out their sales message, so their sales numbers were going through the roof. But meanwhile, the team was walking out the door. Um, And after uh, a couple of attempts for us to sort of fix that, uh, in a drunken conversation with one of the founders, um, I was given the the dubious responsibility of taking that problem on. Uh, And so having joined the board of the the company that acquired us, I I took on that turnaround and led that and essentially took that turn down from 40% to 6%. So over the the space of of sort of a few years, we went from a team of 60 that was losing 24 people a year to a team of around 200 that was losing 12 people a year. Now, interesting thing was that I found in doing that, you know, there wasn't really any particular magic, you know, I wish I could just sort of say, you know, here's, here's the formula and here's the, and, and, and there was something, some big secret that nobody knew anything about what actually happened was quite simply, I made it pretty clear what uh, I was hoping we would stand for as a team and as a company uh, and I was very clear about what we were about. And then probably the more difficult bit was having said that, I then <laughs> went and demonstrated it because uh, saying it is a, is, is a relatively easy thing to do. Um, then going and doing it is, uh, you know, takes a little bit more discipline. And it was essentially that that turned the team around. It was the fact that they saw that there was actually a, a, a set of core values that were being adhered to. That weren't just, you know, posters on the wall or, 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 you know, bullet points on an about us page, um, but were actually how things happened. Um, And we continued to grow. We we grew up to, we grew to around three, uh, just over 300 people. We got acquired by a big American corp. And then I took on sort of a consulting team across Europe, Middle East and Africa of about 500 people and eventually left there simply because, you know, my values and purpose and the way that I believed in things was different from the organization's and you know i'm i'm fairly keen to make the point that it's different not that it was better or worse it's interesting because a lot of the people who were with me um who had grown up with me and were part of the acquisition uh, you know there was a lot of discussion about oh well you know this company's bad and it's a bad culture and it's bad values and it's bad this and it's bad that and and my perspective was actually i, I don't know if it is it's it's just not my values it's not my purpose not what i believe in um and so i'm leaving because it no longer resonates. It's not the right thing for me to be here because I am misaligned with what this organization is trying to do. Yeah. Uh, And the interesting thing was having sort of done that myself in terms of growing consultancy that was around technology, I found out that the magic source wasn't the technology at all. It was actually putting the values and the purpose into the organization. And that's what really led me to start beyond the quarter was uh, really, I was looking at that and saying, well, actually, this is, this, is the, this is what companies need to be looking at more. They need to be looking at how do they put values and purpose at the heart of what they do. And really, what, what, what for me was kind of, yeah, the way that I ran things rather than the core proposition actually now turned into the core proposition, which is helping companies to recognize that and recognize that that's a good way for a company to grow. It isn't the only way, you know, if we were sat here you know I, I run into a lot of people who say, "Well, you absolutely need purpose and values, and, and you know if you don 't have that, your company won 't grow, and it 's doomed, et cetera et cetera well, I call b s on that you know otherwise you know, how can british British American tobacco exist Yeah. right if you 're making your money off selling tobacco to kids that are you know where, where you can get away with selling it to kids maybe in the Middle East or in the far East, where the law isn 't as tight uh, i 'd say your values and purpose are probably pretty broken, yet you are insanely profitable. So for me, it's not so much that you have to do it, um, but it is a choice that every CEO and leadership team can make with regards to, you know, what kind of a company do they want to be leading? Um, You know, what do they want to go home and tell their kids, you know, their their other halves, their parents about the companies that they work in? Yeah, yeah. And so at at, at its heart, really, what what, what this is about is about getting to a place where uh, humanity is no longer serving business, but business is serving humanity because I think we've kind of flipped the means and the ends round. We've got ourselves to a place where capitalism is the goal. And you know we're all the fodder that goes into the machine that feeds capitalism. Whereas the reality is, even in capitalism's origins, that it was about making the world a better place for humanity. And we seem to have kind of lost that and swapped things around. And that's what Beyond the Court is about. Sorry, a really long story, but that's how I got to where I got to.
0: That's really cool. And from what I've read, that younger people um, are attracted to more purpose-driven organizations, so millennials and Generation Z. And, I mean, that's a huge generalization, but that seems to be the trend for employees.
1: It is definitely a trend for employees. Again, to your point, it is it is a huge generalization, and we sometimes need to be careful about that. Um, because I also, you know, sometimes I look and think, well, actually, I don't think it's just, it isn't just millennials. You know, there's a there, there's a bunch of middle aged people who are now seeing this as an important thing. I think I think actually we've probably just got to a place in the evolution of society and the capitalism where people are looking at it and thinking, you know, maybe this is this has just gone a bit too far and we need to uh, we need to put it right. Yeah. And as far as the millennials and Gen Z are concerned, you know, that's that's all they've known. They've grown up in, in they've grown up in that environment. And so perhaps their take on it is a little bit different just because that's all they've known. Um, but the reality is, I think a lot of society is heading that way because it's, um, you know, we can't go on with the kind of uh, crony exploitative capitalism that, that that we've been busily building over the last forty years since since the wonderful uh, Milton Friedman mm-hmm. speech that the only the only um, uh, social responsibility of of the companies to its shareholders, you know, that's just taken us down a really bad path. And I think everyone's realizing it, not just the millennials.
0: Do you think the coronavirus pandemic has had an impact on organizations shifting towards being more values-led or purpose-led? I think it has. And it's, it's interesting.
1: When it first kicked off, you know, I think there was a lot of fear that um, we would all retrench into, well, we just must make money. Mm. You know, business is at threat. So forget everything else. Let's just go back to what business is supposed to be about. And I say supposed to with my air quotes going up, um, which is making money. And there was a lot of fear uh, about that. It was quite interesting. My my response was quite different at the time. My response was, we are about to shake up the whole system. Coronavirus is about to shake everything up. And and it is. It's proven that it is shaking everything up. And for me, you know, I look back at any system and any system whether it's a physical system or a social system or a, or a business system that's in flux is a system that can change enormously and where you've got the scope to be driving it in a certain direction. For me when coronavirus happened, I looked at it and said, okay, well, a lot of things are going to change. And now Rather than you know sitting and waiting to see what that change is going to look like, we need to be active in driving the direction of that change. And I think a lot of organisations have been doing that. I mean, I've been fascinated that even the most you know if if, if you will, the most rabid capitalist classes in uh, in in private equity and and in uh, and in investment have been looking a lot more at, at ESG funds. There's been a real growth in them, and and so actually I think that you know, there's been both a realization that uh, humanity is important. It isn't just about the bottom line. Um, and, and COVID forced that on us. You know, if, if you're a CEO, you were no longer looking at a downturn that was just about your money going out of the, of, of, of the bank. It was about your people. And so we were dealing with lives as well as livelihoods. And I think that Uh, made people think of things in a different way. And those that were prepared to take a stance and see the opportunity to reshape things have also been very vocal in saying, okay, let's look at this and let's shape a better form of capitalism coming out of it. So COVID, I think, hopefully will leave us with one gift, having extracted so much from us along the way. I'm hoping it's going to leave us with a gift where uh, a lot of us have woken up to what business should be about.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm always fascinated by the disconnect sometimes between the stated values of an organization and the lived values because I remember I went I went to go and do some training for a client and behind the reception desk was this massive billboard listing their values and diversity and inclusion was I think the second one on the list and I thought oh we're off to a good start you know they they believe in diversity and they and they believe in inclusion yeah. then when I did the training session with the staff they were complaining about what a terrible place this was to work and how the senior leadership team was far from diverse and the behaviours that they were exhibiting were far from being inclusive. Yeah. And I just thought, <laughs> what on earth is going on here? It's like...
1: Yeah, and, and that's a real thing, actually. So there's a, there's a fascinating study that was done, I think it was by the European Institute of Economic Research, on the correlation between values and company performance. And what they found was that there was, um, as, you know, you and I and, and anyone who believes in values um, would kind of expect, there was a positive correlation between positive values and, and an organization's performance. Uh, you know, so much so expected and so you know, dull, if you will. What I found more interesting was that there, they showed that the companies that had articulated values, but then done nothing about living them underperformed the market by about as much as those who'd articulated them and lived them were overperforming. And so you very quickly get to the conclusion that in fact, and, and I've seen this with a couple of clients that I've talked to where you know I'll, I'll talk to them and say, well, if, if you're not prepared to actually do values rather than just articulate them, then I'm not interested in doing the work. Because where it leads you to the conclusion is that you're actually better off not saying anything at all about values if you're not prepared to then go and do the work of living them. Yeah, uh, and I think that's what happens with those companies. I mean, it's, it's it's interesting. There's you know there's an organisation with core values. There's one company, famous company. Its core values were respect, integrity, communication, and excellence. Uh, you know, they sound like reasonable enough values, right? Respect, communication, integrity, fantastic. That was Enron. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, spectacular case study where you know the value, and the values were plastered all over the place, all over their offices, everywhere. But clearly. Just not what the leadership and the organization believed in, you know just an absolute case study in in what happens when there 's complete dissonance
0: between what you say your values are and what, what what you go and do, yes, I suppose as an organization, you need to have your stated values, but you need to work really hard to make sure that people are living those values day to day yeah, absolutely,
1: and and that actually is a lot of the work that I engage with because. You need to make that happen, but you also need to make that happen in an an enterprise that is commercially viable, uh, which means it has to be both profitable and cash flow positive. You know, we can look at purpose and values and say, you know, it it, it starts there and it does start there, um, but it can't stop there. And and I've been guilty. So in in my past, you know, one one piece I didn't mention in my my, uh, story of how I got to where I got to was a startup that I had that failed. So I did I did uh start up a company that was uh, about getting children to engage more with uh, the physical world and with social activities and 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 um and do things that weren't essentially online and I used the the online paradigm it was essentially a social network but but gave them rewards for doing things in the offline world whether that was you know teaching a friend 10 words of Japanese or or how to curl a ball into the top left corner of a of a, of a goalpost or, or or drawing some art or whatever it is. And it was very much purpose-founded. You know, I had four young children and I saw how engaged they were in machines. And I was like, okay, the machines are good, but they need to be doing the other stuff too. Yeah. Absolutely about purpose and values. Couldn't get the commercial model right. And it ended up, you know, it, it, the 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 company failed. You know, took a lot of my savings with it. Um, but that was for me a prime example of starting purely with saying, you know, here is a great purpose, and I want to serve this purpose, and I want to make it happen. If you're doing that in a commercial enterprise and you haven't figured out the commercial model, then you're actually going to end up underserving your purpose. So for me, it's about how do you do those things? How do you do the purpose and values, um, and but embed them into a commercially positive organization, which is essentially what I did previously in the, um, in the consultancies that I had. And that means doing the hard work of figuring out, you know, how do you lead with them? Yeah. How do they get embedded in your processes? Uh, how do they get impacted across your stakeholders? You know, there's ways to do this as, as you well know, because that's absolutely what making DNI real in a company is about. There are ways to do that, but you have to be explicit in, in, in addressing them and making sure that they are embedded.
0: I try and get my clients to think more strategically about diversity and inclusion. So I show them a picture of a pyramid. Yeah. At the top of the pyramid is um, purpose and vision. In the middle of the pyramid is uh, objectives or their key results. At the bottom of the pyramid is their values, and then at the bottom right at the bottom of the pyramid is basically your diversity and inclusion strategy. And I get my clients to think about how can your diversity and inclusion strategy enable and in- empower all of the above? Yeah. so if you have a a value around innovation and creativity, we know that with diversity, you get an increase in innovation. you you know you get out, you get out of groupthink you get people coming from all sorts of backgrounds with different perspectives and that helps drive innovation so therefore that will drive that value and you know that value might then drive a uh, a goal around innovating new products and shipping new products which might help you fulfill your purpose so i mean is that kind of thing you've come across before
1: yeah no no absolutely absolutely and i mean i think um you know for me yeah yeah, i told you up front uh, you know i'm not i'm not a a, a dni specialist when we drill down into the the absolute uh, um detail of how you would go and and implement dni that's when i would say to them you know go go and speak to someone like toby because you want to get absolutely into the heart of how this happens rather than just have somebody who's Helping you execute an overall business strategy, but it is absolutely about that and and I think it's you know it's interesting, it's, it, it is about the perspective. you know we, we talk about diversity, but the reality is that the business performance comes out of more than anything, it's the cognitive diversity and that cognitive diversity is what allows you to innovate what gives you strength and depth and that cognitive diversity comes from people having diverse backgrounds and having diverse experiences and but but where it actually turns into the business benefit is around cognitive diversity and it's it, it's incredible how how overlooked that is uh, still um, I, I don't think people realize uh, organizations realize enough either how this is the opportunity cost
0: of not doing it or how to actually make that happen. Mm, absolutely. So I, I think one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you was because I felt there was this connection between what you do and what I do. Like you, You help organizations grow through values and purpose. And then I talk about inclusive growth, how organizations can grow by being more inclusive and having a diverse workforce. So What's your perspective on what inclusive growth actually means? I come back to the cognitive diversity uh,
1: aspect. I think in, if, if we're, so we, we can look at an inclusive organization, but if we're looking at explicitly at, at inclusive growth, i.e., how does your organization grow through uh, inclus- inclusiveness and diversity? You know, for me, that turns into not just have you got them, uh, have you got people at the top who are from diverse backgrounds? That is important. It doesn't get too much focus, but I think other areas need to get as much focus, right? And uh, and the other area specifically is what does your pipeline look like that allows people to get there? You know, I think it's very easy to have the headliner. Um, you know, we have a, um, you know, we have... X percentage, uh, women on our, on our board or X percentage, uh, people with, uh, with disabilities or of ethnic backgrounds or, or whatever. And it's great to have that as a headline, but more often than not, in a lot of companies, you, you, that all they're in the headline because almost they're outliers rather than they're a consequence of the system that's got them there. Yeah. And so for me, inclusive growth is about having a system in place that allows people to develop through the organisation and get there, so that you're not, you're you're not, and I and I don't think it's it, it's unfair to call it tokenism, but sometimes it feels like that. But but you're not getting isolated cases that are at the top uh, and taking that as a as a as a tick in the box that therefore I, I've done di- I've done diversity because you know, I've got a, I've, I've, I've got a black woman on my board and I've, I've got someone who, who has X, Y disability and, and, uh, and an Asian man. And I've now done diversity tick the box. Yeah. (laughs) You know, it's (laughs) like, how did they get there? How, what, what, what does it look like through the whole of the rest of your organization? What have you done to promote that? What have you done to allow people to face that? What are you doing in the boardroom? I mean, it's, it's interesting. I, I sit in a boardroom and it's, and, and, and it, it, the uh, types of discrimination, as you'll well know, they they surface in ways that are sometimes incredibly subtle and 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 hard to spot. Yeah, yeah. You know, I've sat uh, the, the number of times, and this this happens. I see this a lot with 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 women, and I hate to stereotype, but it's, I'm stereotyping men as I am women with this. Um, Where uh, we're sat in a leadership team, and the hot debate kicks off, and invariably the blokes all dive in. With their various viewpoints, and I don't hear much from from the woman in the room. And then, when the blokes have calmed down, the woman pipes up with a very valid opinion, but gets dismissed at that point, yeah, because it's perceived as if you know we've had the debate; it's all over. Why are you now bringing this up again? Yeah, and so it's a double penalty because a not engaged in the in in, in the discussion in the first place, but b then when you are when when it is brought up. You're almost sort of beaten down for having brought, for having brought it up. It was only, you know, I saw this sort of three or four times before I suddenly clicked that there was a pattern here. But these things are just, you know, they're there in the culture and the culture doesn't come out
0: of nowhere. That's the thing. It's very small micro behaviours. Mm. I mean, we know about micro incivilities. Yeah. So those kind of small acts of behaviour that undermine people. Yeah, And they can be directed towards a particular characteristic, like your gender or ethnicity or disability, that kind of thing. But we also know that things like a conscious bias, it's very subtle, it's very unintended, and it's automatic behavior. It's just, it's a product of social conditioning. It's a product of the way that our brains are designed and wired. And I mean, try unravelling that. As, you know, as a senior leader, you've got enough to worry about without having to, to unpick all of that.
1: Absolutely, and I, and I think, but, but I think that, you know, there, there's a couple of things that um, sort of that brings to mind for me. I mean, one is I, I do think we've moved. We've moved so far. You know, I came to the UK in the 19, late 1970s, uh, and the things that I was called in school at the time, because I am a Palestinian Arab and I have an Arab name, are you know, they're words that, that you just don't hear in society anymore. Mm. <laughs> I remember when I was first going for work after university. Um, the employment agency, who I won't name because they still exist, uh, that I went and registered with, um, asked me to put a photo of myself with the CVs. Now, this was in the days when photos were, you know, taken with cameras with film, and you would go and you would print them out, and you'd cut out the square, and you'd, and that would be your photo, that would be your passport photo. And I was told to staple one to my CV, and I found it really odd because, you know, I'm not, you know, it's not – I've never been a particularly handsome man. (laughs) I think What's that got to do with anything, right? (laughs) And eventually I figured this out. I spoke to an HR, uh, someone in an HR department in a company that I was actually temping at at the time. And they said, actually, it's quite easy. When people see a CV with your name, they assume you're Pakistani. Right. They want a photo on to see that you're actually white. And I found that offensive at so many levels. But that was the, you know, mid to late 1980s.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And, and now we've gone completely beyond that. And that's, and that's a great thing. But also for me, the other point, and you mentioned this about leaders and, 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 and the ability to deal with it. I think, you know, there's a, I think we've got a bit of a crisis of leadership going on at the moment anyway. For a variety of reasons, we've got to a place where there's a much higher expectation of there being black and white answers for everything. Mm. that there's a the binary answer that I can look at this topic and I have an answer and therefore I can make that decision based on that answer and it's indisputable and it's, you know, I can almost trace it through a spreadsheet formula and find the input variables and 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 I've got my answer in terms of how I lead and what I do. But the reality is there's a massive amount of gray
0: yeah. in
1: leadership, in humanity, you know, and that's actually what makes humanity magnificent. You know, if there wasn't that gray, we wouldn't be able to be so curious. And so I think you know, there's a bit of crisis in leadership in that we are looking for a binary answer when actually in the end, it comes down to wisdom and judgment that comes from experience and and from humanity. You know, on on DNI, just like on most other topics, there isn't a, I don't think there is a clear cut answer. There is a view, a perspective that you will have, a view, a perspective that I'll have, a view and perspective that anyone has. There are some basic core values or basic ethics that I think ought to be adhered to. But above that, we're all trying to find the answer. Yeah. Uh, and in doing so, we're just on this endless journey, which I think is the same journey that's taken us from a place where I was being told to put a photo of my white face on a CV because it might help me get a job to a place where now we're actually looking at blind CVs. Yeah. Uh, and it's it's just that same journey. We're just constantly shifting the conversation forward and upward. And that's a good thing. That's a really good thing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, yes, thank you ever so much for joining me on today's show. If somebody wants to get in touch with you, because they like the sound of the, the work that you do, how, how should they do that? So there's two ways. Uh, the best way is to find me on LinkedIn. Uh, one of
1: the one of the really bad things about having a name like E.S. Al Carson, which I'm sure will be in the short in, in the show notes, is it's terrible to spell. One of the great things having about it is that there's no other that I've ever met. So, <laughs> so you can find <laughs> me on LinkedIn or just go to dot
0: com. Brilliant. Well, thanks, EAS, for joining me today. It's been lovely to chat with you. And uh, thank you for tuning into this episode of the Inclusive Growth Show. hope you enjoyed my conversation with EAS. And uh, I look forward to seeing you on the next episode, which will be coming up shortly. Until then, take care. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to the Inclusive Growth Show. For further information and resources from Toby and his team, head on over to our website at milden.co.uk.